2: Hello, and welcome to The Doc Exchange, a Real Stories podcast, in partnership with the Grierson Trust. This is a brand new podcast that asks nonfiction filmmakers about the documentaries that have had a lasting impact on their lives and careers. I'm your host, June Jennings. I'm a writer and journalist based in New York and currently serve as the Engagement and Partnerships Manager for Field of Vision, an award-winning filmmaker-driven documentary unit. Every week, I'll ask a new filmmaker or filmmaking team about three documentaries, connected by a single theme, that have made a meaningful impression on their work and life. This week, my guest is Macedonian-born filmmaker and screenwriter Tamara Kotewska. Tamara is best known for co-directing the critically acclaimed and Oscar-nominated documentary Honeyland, which tells the story of a beekeeper in a remote mountain village in Macedonia. Tamara is currently in pre-production on her narrative feature debut, Man vs. Flock. Her credits also include writing and directing the short films Paula, House on a Rocky Road, Games, and Free Hugs. Our interview was a really interesting look at the creative courage and audacity required to make bold and new documentaries. Let's go to that interview. I just wanted to say, one, that Honeyland is gorgeous. I mean, it is just like... It almost feels like a level of like a fable made visual. It's just so gorgeous. And I'm just so thankful that we're able to talk today. So, Tamara, thank you for joining me on the Doc Exchange today. It's really great to have you here. Thank you.
3: Thank you for inviting
2: me. So before we get into your documentary picks, can you talk about what first drew you to documentary filmmaking and what your path to being a filmmaker has been like?
3: Well, uh... Long story short, my passion for filmmaking started when I was really young, when I was about 12. Many circumstances led to this. I don't come from a film family, but I had a really nice experiences in life in my schools where I was going, where we we had like an opportunity to be a part of, to create actually a children's film when we were about 12, 13 and we went in the first festival, that was first festival in my life, in Italy with this film. And from that moment, I knew I will continue this way. And when I was about 18, for the first time, I went to exchange program in USA, in Tennessee, where facing the cultural shock and the beauty of the diversity I saw, led me to think about making documentaries. What was
2: your journey to making Honeyland? How did you discover that story and approach making it into a documentary?
3: Well, Honeyland is not the beginning of my collaboration with the other director, Ljuba Stefanov. It's our second film together, and it's part of a long journey. It started with both of us working on separate documentaries at that time, meeting each other to start working on Lake of Apples, our first film. That took a year of developing, of research, of experimenting with style. This documentary has a mixture of stop animation, of very interesting fairy tale narration, with realistic characters, so it's a nice combination of elements. Took a lot of awards on many environmental festivals, and it was a motivation for us to start with a new process like Honeyland, that we never knew how far it will take us. But Honeyland is just outcome of many years of research and mutual collaboration. And given that it's
2: a film about the environment, one that is very much attuned to nature, as well as the rhythms and routines of rural life, can you talk about how you immersed yourself in this remote community that's featured in the film?
3: Atija, as a character, was found by Lubo many years before we started the project. Somebody showed her to him, and he kept the first photos and footage in a drawer. And after many years, when we got this project to work in the area where Atija lives and we got the opportunity to research for the right subject, that's when we took out these photos and we went and met her after so many years and started the research if, if this is the best the best character for this documentary. And on the beginning, we thought it will be a short documentary. But soon after, we realized that actually it has a lot more and we can develop it into a feature.
2: I recently read that you and the team log something like 400 hours of footage. And so is that when you realize that, oh, we've got so many different aspects of her life documented? Is that when you thought about expanding the work?
3: We started a 6 months research, uh, shooting only with Atij and her family. And after six months, by that time, we believe it will be short. But after six months, the family showed up, the family of nomadic beekeepers. And we realized this is a very strong conflict. And also, it's a key conflict for our film. And it's the key moment when we realized this can be a feature film, the clash of these two worlds. So then we kept shooting for three more years, and this led us to 400 hours of materials. And so thinking broadly about the
2: films you've chosen for today, they could not be more different from one another, I would say. But one thing I noticed is that they all shed light on a phenomenon or an event that may be shrouded in mystery or silence or misunderstanding. Do you see these films as united by that theme or do you see them another way?
3: I didn't try to choose films similar to Honeyland because I think that documentary world is such a wide world of approaches, imagination even, uh, styles, formats. And we must be aware of this. We must be aware as documentaries what great freedom we have that feature films don't have. (laughs) So this is why I wanted to choose very, very different films that left a great impression in different times of my life. And that gave me the courage to experiment and to find my own way. So this was very, very harsh when I first time when I saw it, to think about this, how much am I ready to go into a documentary? How much am I ready to show and to twist people's perspective on what is ethical and what
2: is not. Thinking back to your first pick, documentaries have this reputation of being super serious or super dry, and yet Exit Through the Gift Shop has this very mischievous spirit, and it's a really fun film. How did it influence your perception of what a documentary could be, or did it influence your perception of what a documentary
3: could be? Definitely, yes. The humor and the brightness of it and yet the strong feel it, feeling it leaves you with. I believe that it's really difficult to find humor in a documentary. Because usually people get into really serious subjects. They feel what their protagonists feel. And it's difficult to get out of this. And to find this unique way of approaching where you would find humor. And you would find a brightness in a documentary is the way to do it. Not for every film, obviously, but to present such a strong artist through the lenses of this crazy French guy who you never know if he's serious or not, in a way. It's a really, really smart way to do it because many people could do the documentary just for the subjects, just for Banksy or just for the street art. But for me, it was impressive to find this new, twisted and funny perspective of showing things. This was, I can say, the first documentary that matured m- my wish to make documentaries and to feel this bravery into entering a real situation and hunting the real moments and creating beautiful hero from a real character, which is really important. And it's also a film that makes the inner workings of the art world, which is often
2: portrayed as stuffy or hard to understand, seem pretty accessible and even exciting. While working on Honeyland, did you think about how a practice like beekeeping could seem more accessible to the average audience member? Did you pull from Exit Through the Gift Shop to think about how you could represent something that seems maybe a bit obscure to a wider audience?
3: It's really good that none of us, the filmmakers, knew anything about beekeeping. And Even though, for example, I always say it's a good thing for an author to be completely familiar with a subject they represent. It's good that this subject is part of their life, of their reality. But sometimes being out of this reality might be better because if you speak about a subject that is not familiar to the general public, then you at the same time are the author and the audience. So, for example, myself, when I see the beehives, if I don't know what's happening, I know what answers I should give to the audience because they also don't know what's happening. So it's sometimes a huge benefit to be out of this world. And for us, it was very, very nice to see something completely unfamiliar and to start with these basic children questions like, what do bees eat? How do they eat? How do they make this honey? So this is how we approach this subject. When we ask the basic questions and then we enter into this beginnings of the story together with Atije. How she explained, well, yes, they make it like this because of this. They eat it like this. I share it because of this. If I don't share it, this will happen. And when you show this visually, it becomes a uh, Beautiful story, universally understood from the youngest to the oldest generation.
2: And so thinking about Exit Through the Gift Shop, someone like Banksy is already immersed in the art world, very much is, in some ways, the center of the street art world. So how did you, as an outsider to the beekeeping community, familiar yourself with that world
3: and earn Atija's trust? For her especially, we didn't need a lot of time. Actually, it was a click because this woman wants to tell her story to the world she wants people she needs people in her life she feels lonely and every person that comes there she loves this person and she's open to it. so this is rare to find really rare usually subjects are really close to the camera really close to you they don't trust you like the Sam family it was very difficult to work with them we needed many many months of approaching But with Atija, it was really, really easy, actually. Even though at the very, very beginning, there was some moments when she didn't feel comfortable with the camera because it was the first time she see an image of herself and she felt in shock in a way. Oh, wow. She had photos from the past, but seeing herself after so many years when she's already old and seeing herself on a footage was a shock but only in the beginning. And then she accepted this and she just went along with us and with the camera and with us.
0: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door.
2: So your next pick is the 2012 documentary The Act of Killing, which is directed by Joshua Oppenheimer. It gives Indonesian death squad leaders the opportunity to reenact the mass killings that they carried out in Indonesia between 1965 and 1966. Why do you consider this to be such a significant film?
3: Well, why this film is the most significant, first of all, especially in the documentary film world, is because it raises the question of morality of filmmakers and its subjects, which is the key question that is never answered in the documentary world. It's the first time that we see such a twisted perspective of what we consider right and wrong. It was a subject that show us being proud of the bad things he did as being a national hero. And to follow this kind of person, I mean, usually in in documentaries, when you follow this kind of person, you know as an author that this is a bad person, universally bad. And in a way, he knows that he's bad and the audience knows he's bad. But uh, giving now in the act of killing, giving your protagonist a chance to recreate what he did And one more time, being proud of remembering how good he made to his country. It's incredible because it's like he's also convincing the audience and the author that what he did is maybe right, you know, and this is really difficult to understand, you know, where are the limits of what makes us human and not human in a way. And I mentioned this film in the tree, because uh, we had also a lot of moral questions in Honeyland, how far we went. We have a scenes with drowning of the girl and the death of the mother of Atija and the cutting of the tree and just uh, witnessing all these horrible things in front of the camera that we were also judged, especially here in our country, how we didn't do anything about it and how we just present it, like how we managed to shoot it and, you know, not react. This is the moral dilemma that every author must answer to themselves, how far they are ready to show their protagonist, in what light they are ready to show them. And in this case, I would say the author can show as much as the protagonist wants to be shown. If I'm pushing my protagonist to do more than they want, then it's not okay. It's not a documentary. But if I'm only the observer and giving all the space and everything that a protagonist would usually do, then I'm just the storyteller. And it's important to tell this story through his eyes. So, for example, when the Sam family, together with the buyer, was cutting the tree and people said, how can you not stop this? I mean, they're destroying her bees but this is what they would anyways do if we are there or we are not there. So it's better to show it to the world than not show it to the world. And also, they are proud of what they're doing. They were calling us, they were saying, look, we can do this. Just as an act of killing, the protagonist is proud. He's like, I will show you how I did it. Sometimes, even though it's scary to look at this as a documentarist, it's your duty to stay with your eyes open at the biggest crimes because you are the messenger.
2: I'm wondering if you could talk more about how you safeguard your subjects or collaborate with them, especially when you're depicting a smaller community or a subculture like beekeepers of Macedonia.
3: Again, I would say it's different with Atice and different with Sam's family. The first rule we respected is not to buy our subjects with material goods In the process of making the film, we find this really necessary as a rule in documentary filmmaking because we're not working with actors that have an agreement and that's it, you know. So you need to be really careful how much you show that you give and how much they can bribe you. But for us, it was important to understand the story, the importance to tell their story, basically. So they want to participate and the material goods would come after that, but they never asked for it in the process, which was good for all of them. It was really nice that the whole process was accepted as a game. It was something fun, something new going on in the desert of Bekirlia. And it's the only way to really, really come to the core of their personalities and what they really do if they all accept it as a game and if they want to tell this story, if they're proud of who they are. This is the only way because if you try to, to buy their trust with material goods, maybe you will buy their trust, but you will never buy their true faces. They will remain with the mask on. So it's important to persuade them to believe for real in what you're doing, that they are really important for what you're doing. Afterwards, when the film was done, we bought Atija a house and we bought the family a car and schooling and social worker that will help them with everything. Until today, we're still trying to help them in any way we can. So they were happy, but they never asked for it. They're really modest people. And they just said, thank you for the process. And they accepted us as their friends and their family. So that's a real way of documentary filmmaking.
2: Let's go to your final pick, which is Werner Herzog's Cave of Forgotten Dreams. Can you tell us when you first saw this film and what impression it left on you?
3: First time when I saw it, I saw it in a cinema in Macedonia. I saw it 3D. I entered the cinema with a huge mistrust. 3D was, my personal opinion of it, was it's destroying film. Every time I was looking at 3D in a feature film, I was like, why, why? I mean, come on. I want to watch the story. Why my eyes are hurting? Why Why am I looking at the bubbles flying around? It's, it's really not necessary. But when I saw Cave of Forgotten Dreams for the first time, I realized this is what it's made for. This film, it couldn't be the same without this 3D. So for me, this was the impressive thing how he found a way to shoot in such harsh circumstances where he only had one hour possibility of shooting and he created this realistic 3d world for us to see which actually exists and he put this magic and he has this mystery in the story and it was very interesting because i saw this film the first time when i was a student and second time We saw together with Luba when we started shooting Honeyland and we said, oh, think about if one day we made, it was like a, like a dream, you know, think about if one day we make a film that will reach so high, like it was impressive for us. So obviously Honeyland is something completely different, but it has this kind of mystery and this kind of magic in the realism. The biggest impression was how much magic you can create in such a short time, because documentaries authors always have a really short time to react. And in this short time, when you want to catch this particular moment that you have, and it will never be repeated again, it's important how much inner peace you will have to make this moment eternal, to kind of keep calm and catch it.
2: And so thinking about the techniques that were used in the film, there's use of 3D technology that you mentioned that brings the cave paintings to life in this unforgettable way. And given that Honeyland is such a visual film as well, I was hoping you could talk about how you went about your creative process, particularly around decisions a visual style?
3: So what helped us a lot into creating such a strong visual piece was the fact that we didn't understand Turkish. And during the shooting, we decided to let them, because they also speak Macedonian, but only to us. But we decided to let them speak in Turkish during the entire shooting. And we were only able to witness their body language, their gestures, their face reactions. And we started training our eyes to see if the scene is clear without a dialogue. because we don't understand. So if we understand only visually what's going on, everyone will understand. And later we used a um, mute editing technique, uh, which means turning off the dialogue, the sound, and just going by the image and telling the story by the image, like a silent movie. (laughs) So just using the most impressive visuals that we had and trying to show as much of the story possible only through visual and then adding the dialogue afterwards.
2: And so a film like Cave of Forgotten Dreams is a film that's infused with such a sense of wonder and magic. And I think that Honeyland definitely has that magic and wonder in its own way. I'm curious to know if you could talk about how this film about the Chauvet Caves influenced the making of Honeyland in any way.
3: Oh, yes, definitely, yes. It might be the most of reminding us as authors how much beauty there is hidden in our own country, how many regions that were not discovered, like uh, Bekirlia, and that actually we have this magic at home. We just need to look more carefully to find it. This is what this film left as a as an impression on me for this uh, research. The influence is definitely apparent and I'm
2: really glad we were able to talk about this film and the other films. Today and so Tamara, thank you so much for joining us on the Doc Exchange today. It's really been a pleasure to speak with you about these films and about Honeyland. Thank you so much, June. That's all for this week's show. The Doc Exchange, a real stories podcast, is a little Dot Studios production in partnership with the Grierson Trust. I'm your host, June Jennings. The Doc Exchange is produced by Nicole Davis and Annie Hughes. Our executive producer is Paul Wolfe. Our music is by Dusty Dex and sourced through Epidemic Sound. We're edited by Content is Queen. And our artwork is by Nash Cassick. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. If you want to watch even more great documentaries, join us at Real Stories on YouTube, Amazon, Facebook, and other platforms. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week.